so what they did is they beheaded the knights, whether they were alive or dead, but they certainly beheaded them. They stuck their heads on pikes. Then, to cap it off, the Turks crucified the bodies on makeshift crucifixes and floated them across Grand Harbour to Fort St. Angelo. At that point, the Grand Master Vallette ordered his prisoners, the Turkish captives, he had to be beheaded, and he fired their heads from the cannons on the ramparts of Burgu and Senglia and, and fired them back into the Turkish line. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend, James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Tom. We have an especially juicy morsel for our listener today. Jamie, can you start by giving us some background to the Great Siege of Malta and the bloody part played by the moments at Fort St. Elmo in this critical clash between the Ottoman Empire and Christian Europe? Well, we're talking about the Great Siege of Malta of 1565, Tom. And But before we do that, let's go back to 1291, when the Mameluk Sultan of Egypt brought his forces against the last redoubt of the Crusaders at Acre, modern-day Akko, as the Israelis call it, on the Israeli coast, the coast of Palestine in those days. And the Crusaders were, at that stage, reduced to a strip of land called Outremer. They were supplied by sea to their forts, but finally that outpost fell. And that's cue the start of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code when they, the Templars smuggled out their, their treasure the night before their lion fortress fell. And they, they held out for 10 days after the town fell. But anyway, after that, you see the, the Templars fleeing to Cyprus, the Hospitallers, the famous Knights of John, going to Rhodes. And the, these are the guys who were ultimately interested in? Absolutely, because there they sat for the next few hundred years until 1522 when the Sultan, Ottoman Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, invaded Rhodes and threw them out. And rather foolishly, actually, allowed them to surrender and retreat. And no one knew what to do with them. I mean, you're talking about the age of the nation-state, you know, or the city-state. And here was this sort of hangover from the Crusades with no real role. And so finally, they were offered Malta by the Spanish, so they went and settled there. They never thought they'd stay there. They thought it was just a piece of barren pumice in the middle of the Mediterranean. They thought one day we'll go back to Rhodes, one day we'll achieve our previous glory. Yeah. But they didn't. They just became pirates. And by 1565, there were 750 of them sitting on Malta. And, and who were they, these people? They came from different countries. There was one Englishman, but most of them came from France or Spain, Italy. Italian states, city-states, and they were basically dying on their feet. I mean, mm. they, they were pretty much despised, pretty much ignored, and they just went on living their lives, raiding Ottoman sea routes along North Africa and annoying everyone in general. Yes. And then in 1565, Suleiman the Magnificent, who was now by then an old man, 
years after his 1522 triumph, decided, I'm going to wipe out this nest of vipers. So he sends this enormous fleet, 200 ships, 30,000, 40,000 men, to Malta to wipe them out. And he thought it was going to be an easy victory. So Mustafa Pasha, his old general, Piali, who was essentially a son-in-law, the admiral, ended up going to Malta. And who should join them but the famous corsair Dragut. Uh-huh. And if you look at Grand Harbour in Malta, on one side of the northern side of it, you've got Fort St. Elmo. On the southern side, you've got Fort St. Angelo, which is the headquarters of the Knights of St. John. At that time. At that time. And actually, it is still the headquarters of the Knights of St. John, the Knights of Malta. Right. And the famed Jean Parisot de Vallette, or de la Vallette as he became, sat in Fort St. Angelo. And it's amazing when you walk on the roof of that, that fort, you know, there is his private chapel and also his nymphaeum, his little grotto, which water grotto against the... And he could see exactly what was happening to Fort St. Elmo. Yeah. And once the, the, the Turks attacked Fort St. Elmo, brought their cannons up, had dozens of guns bombarding the fort, Vallette knew that this was going to be the crux, the crucible of the battle, and it could make or break the siege of Malta. The survivor of the knights would be decided here because what he decided, what he did was every night was reinforce across the thousand-yard gap between Fort St. Angelo at the end of this little peninsula, Burgu. Every night used to send reinforcements in order to try and bleed out the Turkish attacks. Okay, so this is a sort of tactic that's been used throughout history of basically creating a Pyrrhic victory, is it? Of uh, sucking the... Well, absolutely. I mean, the idea is to ensure that the enemy bleeds out. And it's no coincidence that this siege was basically from late May to latish June. So you're talking just under 30-day siege of Mm. Fort St. Elmo. And in that time, the Turks lost half or more than half of their janissaries, which were their famed shock troops. They were the best marksmen. They were the best fighters. They were the equivalent of the Waffen Waffen SS. So this was very, very important for Vallette to see this happen. And you had a huge bombardment. And what has been learned throughout history is that if you reduce something to rubble, you are essentially creating the perfect defense. And you saw that in Stalingrad, for example, in the 1940s. You saw that at Monte Cassino. So that sort of fighting is reduced to really whites of their eyes, hand-to-hand, close-quarter battle. And, you know, Stalingrad, the the, the favored weapon of Soviet troops, was basically the sharpened trenching tool. At Monte Cassino, a lot of the North African troops that the Allies used preferred to carry knives and go into action with knives rather than hand grenades or carrying extra mortar bombs for their mortar platoons because it weighed too much. So you are basically reduced to really visceral sort of trench-clearing tactics. And again, go to the Imperial War Museum today and you'll see the sort of weapons that were carried uh, by British troops in trench-clearing missions. You're talking knuckle dusters and and clubs. Yeah, with nails stuck in them. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, actually, Jamie, in terms of the structure of this talk, this is a good point to start getting into the sort of different areas I want to discuss, one of which is the sort of use of these hand weapons, swords, blades, and so on. And perhaps we could, you know, I've got various bits of things written down here, broadsword, rapier, dagger, small shields, and also the skill of fighting. You know, how did these people know how to use this? 
quite apart from the grubby hand-to-hand element and the piratical element that people would have picked up by being in the military or basic training, there were a lot of fencing journals in those days and a lot of fencing masters. There was the Spanish style of fighting, there was the French style of fighting, the English style of fighting, Italian style of fighting. People prided themselves on their skills. There was the destreza form of fighting, which means dexterity or the skill in Spanish. There's one report in the early 17th 17th century of a destreza master killing 13 opponents in a duel. I would hate to have been number 13. Yes. Uh, Unlucky for some. (laughs) (laughs) And so, I mean, think of the way that children are educated and and young adults are educated today. At what stage would uh, somebody sort of be said, right, you're off to go and see the sword master now and start learning the basics? Oh, right from the start. And certainly if you're a gentleman and were heading to be a knight of St. John, you would have had fencing training from a very early age. What, uh, age five or 12? Later or? on. I mean, you wouldn't have been able to, to hold a sword then, but you would certainly, as you got into your early teens, you would have certainly had a lot of fencing lessons. It was just part of your edu- education. And not only using a shield or a dagger in one hand, but carrying a buckler, a small shield in one hand. This is how fencing was conducted. You know, from Tudor times into the early 17th century, you would have carried a buckler and then a dagger. So people favoured different means. I mean, if you look at Destreza, it taught you how to use everything from a rice flail to a sword to a to a wooden chair. So, and did they do this business like the Romans when they practiced? They practiced with heavy wooden swords to build up their muscles. Oh, they would absolutely have done that. Yeah. As I said at the beginning, the, the Knights of Saint John by this stage were essentially pirates. They were galley pirates. Jean Parisot de Valette had been a galley slave in the Corsairs for a couple of years and survived. So they were very tough men. They knew how to fight. They didn't wear leg armor. They just wore cuirasses. They wore breastplates. They were used to running around. I mean, you know, galley warfare was essentially infantry warfare at sea. So these guys were very used to behaving like corsairs. They weren't fighting sort of ordered battle they really used to having a punch-up and so at close quarter they were using everything from axes to war hammers to maces broadswords of course but even though they would have there would have been long swords like the Zweihander, the two-handed sword in those sort of situations you know you're much better off with a battle rapier or a cat spell you know a short or what was colloquially called a cat gutter short stabbing swords and if you were being really brutal about the way and you had the time and focus to achieve it what's the best way to stab someone with a sword <laughs> to make it most of them not only killing them ultimately but also making it inconvenient for their fellow men i.e maybe wounding them a bit we're not just talking about stabbing someone we're also talking about the best way to shoot someone you basically go for the place that is least protected For the knights, because they were simply wearing upper armour, you'd have the Turks often firing at their groin because that was they were underneath, really. They were basically on the walls below. Taking a pot shot at the codpiece. Yeah, absolutely. They were shooting upwards. They were firing upwards. And so that would have been the most vulnerable area. 
which to attack for the Nice and John, they were very vulnerable to that. And of course, they had to run around very fast. They had to traverse the ramparts. For the Turks, if you're attacking them with a sword, of course, if they were wearing armor, you'd try and go for an arm or a leg. And not forgetting that in those sort of conditions, you're going to end up causing probably a mortal strike if they don't have the right medicines, if they can't clean the wound, if dirt gets into the wound. So you're basically going for whatever you can hit. Right. But when you learn the art of sword fighting, is it because when it's one-on-one, it's more of a formal dance, but when you're in a battle, it's just a melee, it's just a, a mad sort of thrashing around of swords? Or was there a sort of, you know, do you remember the scene in Zulu where the sergeant major um, bayonets various matabili, and he stands, you know, in this particular pose and sort of goes one, two, and he sort of does the classic sort of bayonet in, bayonet out? Well, when the Zulu impi came to attack, they were always... When when they were attacking a, another enemy, they would always try and get under the shield, and you would faint, and you would then push in the attack. And then slip the spear up into their ribs. Absolutely. And, and of course, if you're fighting with a rapier, and you had been trained in fencing, there's always faint involved. There's always trying to outwit the opponent to put them off balance and then go in for the strike. And of course, you're going for a, if you can, you're going for a heart shot. You're doing what anyone with a pistol would do today, which is try to go for the biggest mass, which yes. is, of course, the centre of the body. And again, it depends what weapon you're using. If you're carrying something like a partisan spear, which would be very useful in those sort of situations, not only are you trying to stab the opponent, but you can also whip the partisan around. You use it to smash into their face yes. or knock them off balance or hit their shins and then whip it around again and you thrust it in as a spear. So you're going for whatever target you can reach. As yes. you say, it's a melee. Yes, but so say your teacher's teaching you. No, this is the, if you know, if you get the opportunity, the best thing is to stab him in the thigh or in the armpit or in the eye. What would they be told? Where to? Oh, that you try and get a kill, so plainly through the heart if you can. But if that's armoured, go for somewhere else. Well, that's slightly what I mean. The heart is covered by a lump of yes, metal. So then, so then you would go for the neck, the face. And don't forget, with a rapier, you can also reverse it and use the guard, the hilt, to smash into the face of the opponent. And it depends how close you are. But you are using whatever comes to hand yes. in that environment. But I guess your guy you mentioned who killed 13 people in his thing, he was a great expert. I mean, he was like a surgeon in that he would have kind of popped his blade into the right place each time. Oh, and he would have been quick. He would have kept the opponents off balance. He would have used geometry. This is what Destrace was really based on. It was conservation of energy and effort and geometry. It was very calculated and very clever. And yet at the same time, it must be completely instinctive. I mean, they must have practiced it so much that they didn't have to think it through. They just did it. You, had you wouldn't to, have the to time be, to think. You had to be to be a master of any kind, whether it's in distress or any other formal kind of fencing. But frankly, in a battle, when you're carrying a, a hammer or an axe or a mace, or a spear, you are basically doing whatever you need to do at that particular moment. That There's nothing fancy nothing about, about close-quarter close battle. No, 
Okay. The hospitalers knew about wounds. I mean, they, they from the Crusades onwards, they had been there to run the hospitals and hospices. So they knew about things like gangrene. They knew about producing, uh, scraping fungus off the rocks and use, uh, turning them into poultices. They knew about basic basic medicine and anatomy I'd and say. anatomy and trying to staunch blood you know stop wounds stop the spread of, of gangrene so for example one of the tricks they would have used would have been to dip musket balls in pig fat or animal fat not only to set fire to the robes of the turks when they fire you know, as they fired them but also to spread disease to spread gangrene well not did they also do it for a religious reason they might well have done it, knowing that this would have been an unclean animal and yeah. unacceptable. So, and they would, you know, or they would have, just as archers in centuries before would have dug the heads of arrows into the ground or put gangrene on them or poisons. It was pretty common practice and known that this would spread disease. Let's say something about pole weapons. Well, with pole weapons, you're really talking about pikes, halberts, that sort of thing. And they're of most use, really, in formations, in well-disciplined infantry formations. So if anyone used them, it would have been the Spanish infantry who were there to support the knights. Now, in the chaos of a siege where you've got breaches being formed, you've got collapsing ramparts, that formality, that order, goes out of the window. So it's very difficult to use a pole weapon. It gives you reach, that's the advantage, but they're not flexible in that environment. They can be quite good at crowding out the enemy if they come through a breach and you want to force them back. So they would have been used in that situation, but they wouldn't have been that useful in trying to prod the enemy from a rampart. They might have been useful on the ravelin, the earthworks outside Fort St. Elmo, for example, that was put up just before the ditch that had stakes in it in front of the main walls of the, of the fort. So there were many obstacles in which the enemy had to get across, had to traverse. It was like a modern assault course, but much deadlier, of course. Yeah. And so in the areas where the enemy could be channeled, then pole weapons had a use. The, the most useful pole weapon of all, and you're talking about a pole weapon 11 feet long. What's it got on the end? Well, it depends whether it's a halberd or whether it's just a pike, whether it's half axe, half spear. So you've got, or whether it's a battle scythe, for example, uh, stuck on the end. But again, they're difficult to handle. They're heavy things. And, and long, yeah. And long. And the most useful weapon, actually, during the siege, pull weapon during the siege, was probably the trump. That was really a medieval weapon, and it was a flamethrower. And again, it had linseed, naphtha, gunpowder, all sorts of things mixed up into it. And so not only did you have an 11-foot pull, you then had something that could spurt a flame out up to sort of 15 feet. So, you, so, so it's a sort of marriage of a pole weapon and a sort of early gun. Yes, or at least a flamethrower. So you're talking quite a long reach. You're talking 26 to 30 feet. I think a very difficult bit of kit to use. A difficult bit of kit to use, but the, the knights went one step further and they managed to put a brass cartridge in it full of aquabus balls. So when the flame died out, suddenly the thing would turn into junk 
shotgun. So again, it's a sort of scatter weapon. And they weren't amateurs in this. They would have had also things like Saker cannons, anti-personnel cannons that fired musket balls, that fired arquebus balls, and could take out quite a lot of people, and certainly in a confined space or if they're enfiladed, it's quite difficult to escape that shot. And it would have absolutely terrified the Turks. Well, let's have a description of the Trump in action from your wonderful book, Blood Rock. A piteous cry and a night fell past Hardy into the trench. He would be lost among the later press of dead. The Trump! Christian, take the Trump! It had been quick thinking by a guardian angel on the walls. With an upward glance, he caught the long wooden shaft of the incendiary and swept it in a fiery arc towards the advancing enemy. The muzzle snorted, spitting flame, igniting a swathe of robed Turks. In seconds they were indistinct shapes, writhing in a sea of fire. Some staggering among their brethren, spreading the conflagration, others dropping like wax candles to burn in the ditch below. A figure stripped of life and flesh collapsed in molten incandescence on the bridge. Wood smouldered. Hardy moved forward, catching a trio of kneeling arquebusiers as they sought to take aim. They erupted into individual pyres, their powder horns detonating and blowing away body parts. The foe were edging away. Gradually the blazing tongue of the trump weakened. It sputtered, its bellow growing asthmatic and thin. The Turks pushed in. A large janissary smiled as he inched forward, signalling to the arquebusiers beside him to lower their weapons. The infidel would be his, was there for the taking and the trophy head. You stare at death, unbeliever. Hardy did not move. I stare at a mere Turk. A janissary, an invincible one. None are invincible. He watched as the flame from the trump died. You are a clown bedecked in heron plumes. I am a soldier of the Sultan, and the crescent who will drink your blood. For that, you will need a mouth and a stomach. It was the black moor who had modified the trump, who had placed inside its hollow tube a brass canister full of musket balls, these now discharged. In a ripple explosion, they tore through the Turkish ranks, winnowing, flattening, driving back. Men clutched at faces which had ceased to be clasped at bellies that spilled their contents. The upper torso of the Janissary had vanished. So it seems to me, you know, over the history of warfare, there have been moments where organised forces, I guess something like the legions is an example, where the Roman legions, where they would come up against very fierce fighters in countries, in Germany or in Britain or whatever. But the, the solid nature of a legion operating overwhelmed these brave, barbaric individuals because they just sort of chopped them up. But in this case, it seems to be the other way around, whereas these quick-moving small groups of men, I mean, around 150 knights, managed to defeat a formal army. Why is that? Well, I mean, look at the defeat of the Roman legions in in the forests of Germany, when 20,000 men were wiped out by the Germans, and the Germans funneled them between palisades and marshes and cut them off. Because again, you go from a well-ordered legion into random groups strung out over a long area, trying to get through a forest they didn't know. Sorry to take it back to the Fort St. Elmo, that's just the land. They couldn't deploy their forces. Yeah, you're always channeled into a very 
sort of short spearhead or a narrow spearhead um, trying to get through these enfilades and being absolutely cut to pieces. And also, don't forget, not only have you got wild pots of wildfire coming down on you, you've also got something that it's always been said Valette invented himself, but who knows, but fire hoops. And these fire hoops were basically wooden hoops wrapped in cotton wool, dunked in brandy, gunpowder, naphtha oil, and set on fire, dropped over the side. And these hoops could catch three or four men at any one time. A lot of the Turkish troops, particularly the Janissaries, were in sort of flowing robes and baggy pantaloons. Yeah. And you are going to go up like a human torch. Did they not learn quickly to not wear baggy pants and to douse themselves in seawater before they went into the attack? Or Again, it's very difficult in those situations to, if you're on the offensive, to do anything than deploy the tactics you try. And everything they tried, I mean, again, this referred to the other side of the, of the harbour when they were attacking Bergen and Senglin, but they tried siege engine. And of course, what did the knights do? They took out stones from the bottom of their walls ran cannon through, muzzles of cannon through, and they fired chain shot. And they took out, they just, from the base, they took out the enemy. There there was another instant where the Turks rolled a bomb. They made this incredibly sort of deadly bomb, which was a barrel of gunpowder covered in sort of bits of iron and everything else, nails, you name it. And they rolled it into the defense, and the defenders rolled it out again. And it blew up went down the slope and blew up and killed absolutely dozens or even hundreds of Turkish attackers. It's like in all those war movies that you don't see nowadays where they throw the stick grenade and then it gets thrown back. (laughs) It's like surely they'd learn to count how long to pull the, you know, before they throw it. It has been known, yeah. The casualties on the side of the Knights were very high indeed. I mean, by the time Fort St. Elmo was taken, I think it was June the 23rd, 1565. You know, there wasn't a knight that wasn't wounded. I mean, they all sat in chairs and on pews behind the shattered ramparts, knowing that this would be the final onslaught. And they sat there with their swords and waited. And sure enough, the, the Turks overran them. But, you know, there were some very heroic moments. I mean, there was one knight who was very badly wounded, mortally wounded, and he crawled from the ramparts to the little chapel there and was found later that night when they went in to pray that he was found prostrate before the altar. Yeah. So there were some very heroic scenes. And there were also battles in Grand Harbour at night when the Turks tried to intercept the reinforcements coming over. But it was the best thing Vallette ever did was funnel men in who, who volunteered. You know, they knew they were going to die. Yes. But they still went across, knowing that by holding St. Elmo for as long as possible, not only would they bleed the enemy, but they would also extend the siege and make it more likely that a reinforcement, that a relief force would arrive from Sicily, which is really what the knights were hoping for. Right. Okay. So, well, talk about another sort of set of weapons to continue the story. Can we have talk about artillery and firearms in this period? You know, cannon, pistols, yes. arquebus, and even does the longbow still have any kind of a say in things? They, they didn't use the longbow they, because the longbow was really uh, such an English weapon, and also it had had its day on the battlefield. There were crossbows used um, because you can rearm, reload a crossbow faster than you can 
uh, an arquebus. I mean, you know, they're they're quite they're quite heavy. Um, they're they're quite difficult to load, aim, fire. Um, In those days, didn't you have to have a burning sort of fuse? Well, the arquebus was essentially a matchlock, so it was a lit taper, lit fuse that went into the pan, went into the hole, lit the powder, and bang, you have an arquebus ball travelling at high speed several hundred feet into the enemy. They could be deadly in the right hands, and the Janissaries were extremely good, very good marksmen, and they trained and trained for that role. And they were good at skirmishing, good at coming forward. The arquebus rested on a pivot so you could align it up decently and get a mark on the target. And would they, once they'd fired it, leave it on the ground and go in with a with a sword, or, or wouldn't you? You'd, you'd have another arquebusier coming forward and firing in your place while you went back to reload. And it depends how close you were to the enemy and whether the enemy were coming forward, or you'd fire as a marksman, and then the other janissaries would go forward with spears and swords to sort out the rest and get in close. The arquebus could be very, very effective. It had originally come out of German defensive positions in the 15th century and had evolved. It was pretty good. As it was a, essentially a hand cannon that suddenly sort of developed into a... Into a, into a well, it, it, they realised they could make it lighter. They realised it could join a mobile force rather than just be used for static defence. Those arquebuses, those personnel, anti-personnel cannons, if you like, evolved into things like the Saker, and were used on ships quite a lot in order to repel borders. So again, the knights would have been very used to these anti-personnel cannons because they would have used them on their galleys. And they had been around since Tudor times and were certainly used during the siege of Malta. Um, so the Janissary, he is, what's he armed with then? Well, he is armed essentially with a scimitar or as a marksman with an arquebus. So, and they were very, very brave. Or a crossbow? Uh, no, they wouldn't have used crossbows. They were essentially arquebus, but they were very, very highly trained, very tough, very rigorous. It was almost sort of commando training of its day. They were essentially the, the offspring, the, the orphans of Christians who were taken into captivity and then raised as Muslims by the Turks. And they were this sort of Praetorian guard. And in fact, there was a sultan who ended up so paranoid about the strength and possibility of a coup, the threat co- posed by the Janissaries, that he ended up wiping them out. He ended up getting them into the water cisterns right. near the top Carpi Palace and wiping them out, thousands of them. They were a sort of double-edged sword, really. But once they had been blunted, it started to seep into the morale, sap the morale of the Turkish army. Mm. And you know, again, in, Yes, so in this particular offensive, once they'd been like the imperial troops at Waterloo or whatever, that was the sort of final straw, so everyone else was going to run for cover if these guys were defeated. Yeah, you, after that, you were dealing with your secondary troops. And then, of course, disease took hold, you had dysentery, there was no natural water supply. Things started going badly wrong because the Turks had expected a very quick victory and they didn't get it. So in terms of that, knocking the place apart and then ending up with the disease on your side, the, the artillery that the Turks are, and I guess the Knights, but the Turks are deploying to knock down St. Elmo, what's that? Well, they, they were using very, very large, they were firing very large rounds of stone, you know, 150-pound 
rounds of stone. I mean, very, very large siege guns. Stone? So what, a round stone or just a rock? Yeah, a round stone. Round right. stone. And you're, 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 you're sending a sort of basilisk ball against the walls and pretty close range. You're also, they also had petard mortars, hence the expression hoist by your own petard. And the mortar is, is it fires up in the air and comes down yeah, over the walls. Absolutely. You've got that. You're also applying siege engines, you're conducting mining operations, trying to undermine the foundations as well, where you dig a tunnel and then set fire to the props, set fire to the supports, so, okay. so the walls collapse. But again, every time a wall collapsed, uh, the knights would either rebuild parts of it into a lower wall, or they would simply leave it and use it as rubble from which they could have advantage to, to pick off attackers. Yes. So artillery and siege warfare sort of goes together at this time. Were they all working from a sort of manual? You would certainly have had books written, texts available, and training on the job in terms of how do you take a castle. And a wealth of experience. Don't forget the Ottomans were the masters in siege warfare. Right. They had invaded Europe, they had invaded other countries in the region, and they were very good at their mining, at firing cannonballs. They were superb artillerymen. It was the thing that with siege warfare, if you had the resources and the time, you would eventually crack any castle. Is that the rule of thumb? It's a rule of thumb if you're bloody good at what you do. There's no point just sitting outside a castle. You have to really know which buttons to press, how to undermine. You would have had a corps of engineers who would have known how to undermine the walls. You would have had artillerymen who knew how to train guns, who knew the right ball, who knew how to make the cannonballs fit. Would they have been able to say to the general, whoever he was, obviously commanding the whole show, yes, we can do this, but it's going to take you two years or, you know, a week? They would have had the experience to know the sorts of things that had to be done. And they certainly would have known that it wasn't just a question of physically reducing the walls, that they were fighting also a physical battle and a psychological battle. So they had to keep the defences guessing on where they were going, where they were undermining. They had to keep the defences guessing which was the weak point that they were going for. And don't forget, Fort St. Elmo had several layers. It had the ravelin, the earthwork, rampart outside the walls. It had a ditch full of stakes and that was crossed by a thin bridge that was very difficult for an armed attacker to cross. And the armed attacker was going to have to fill it with bundles of wood, was going to have to try and put alternative bridges across. All the time, the defenders were pouring a hail of arquebus fire, crossbow fire, wildfire, fire hoops, letting off trumps, those flamethrowers. So you're facing a barrage. And so... So there was a science, but it wasn't guaranteed. The defenders were determined enough that they could extend their period of survival in their castle from the average time to a much greater time if they were resolute. And Fort St. Elmo held out far longer than the Turks or even de Vallette across in Fort St. Angelo could ever have imagined. And that's why de Vallette kept on sending reinforcements across, because he saw 
that it was so critical to keep Fort St. Elmo going and Fort St. Elmo alive. And the Turks never thought that they would lose so much of their strength against the walls of Fort St. Elmo. So it's not an exact science. It's rule of thumb. And much depends on the morale of the enemy. If Fort St. Elmo had crumbled, if the defenders had given up hope, then the Turks would have been in there much more quickly. So, yeah, it's not an exact science. Okay. Dragut, the Corsair, was killed while training guns on St. Elmo. No one's quite sure whether he was killed by a, sh- a lucky shot from Fort St. Angelo, a thousand yards away across the water, or whether the ball from his own cannons threw up rock, you know, it was depressed too much and threw up rock and he was killed by a splinter. No one knows. Or, or of course, the cannon might have exploded. The you know, cast iron cannons in those days were notorious. But some of the cannons the Ottomans had probably would have come from England. England saw the Ottomans, as did the French actually, as a possible uh, sort of leverage against the Spanish. You know, the more you had a Bolshe, Suleiman the Magnificent, the more pressure it put on the Spanish, the more the Spanish would have to direct their efforts and their energies and their fleet of ships against the Ottomans, and the less likely the Spanish were to invade England. So there was always that in the mind of the English. And that was a policy the English had for many, many years. It's the classic, that's our enemy, you know, you're, you're our friend, you know, if we have a common enemy. Even though Elizabeth was delighted that the Ottomans were defeated on Malta, because had Malta fallen, it would have become a springboard for an Ottoman thrust into southern Europe, into Italy or, or Spain, yeah, or even southern France. So the history of Europe absolutely hung in the balance at that stage. It was extremely critical. Luckily, the Knights had a lot of guns that they could train. I mean, a lot of, there was a lot of cannons over at Fort St. Elmo. Yes, Fort St. Elmo, the, I was just looking at a plan of the fort, and it's a very strange shape. It's got sort of very pointy parts. It's a star-shaped fort, and that was the sort of military thinking of the day, that if you have a star-shaped fort, you have a lot of arcs of fire. You know, you have overlapping arcs of fire. So it's very difficult to attack the walls of a star-shaped fort. And it's also very difficult for artillery to find a flat surface to bombard. You can see you're basically always hitting a corner, uh, which is reinforced and hard to get any sort of, you know, real do any damage to. But over time, of course, you are going to reduce it to a pulp. So Uh, even the most technically superior constructed fort of the period would fall if if you carried on with your siege. If you carried it, and, and don't forget, the Ottomans were past masters of artillery. They were a very sophisticated military, probably more sophisticated than Western European militaries of the time. They had really thought it through, and they had a reputation for conquest. They were a very expansionist empire, and a very cruel empire. I mean, you've got to remember that back in, back at the Grand Seregno, back in the court of at the Top Carpi Palace, you, know, you had deaf mutes going around with with silken bowstrings ready to strangle people on the orders of the sultan. Um, And didn't the sultan, this is a bit of a digression, but I mean he was always being bumped off by his children or vice versa. All all the time because usually they married a slave girl from the harem, they married one of the harem girls and the, the politics of the harem were absolutely venomous. You quite often had the eunuchs involved in plots you know, you had them having affairs with the women because obviously it was safe, they weren't going to have children from them. Yes. And what usually happened is that when one 
wife from the harem succeeded and ended up as the key wife, the main wife, she made damn sure that in the line of succession, that her son would succeed and the others were killed. Yes. It was the sort Just of, like Livia in, in the days of Rome. Well, yeah. Or, you know, a pride of lion. You know, yes. it's just the killing of rivals. Yeah. And it's, you know, older than history. <laughs> okay, our next subject area is, well, I put down sort of armour and horses, although possibly there weren't many horses, but, you know, the, the use of armour in this sort of time of changing from arrows to, to gun, gunpowder gun yeah, yeah i mean well there were basically got morian helmets you got a lot of the a lot of the armor that you would have seen again later on in the century at the time of the armada you know you got basic breastplate you had breastplates and you had morian helmets what's a morian helmet it's a classic sort of when you conquistador see a spanish, type. spanish helmet and and then of course you know, because they were sort of piratical and it was actually lighter to wear, you also got the knights wearing brigandine, or brigandine, some call it, brigandine jackets. They were essentially sort of velvet jackets with armour plates. And there's a very good example of one in the armoury in Valletta today. You got jupon jackets, padded jackets. You had anything that would allow them to move quickly. Don't forget that during a siege, you've always got crises coming up you have to you know there's suddenly a breach of the walls there's suddenly a breakthrough and you have to respond quickly you have to be able to run across grand harbor from saint elmo the two sort of peninsulas of senglia and bergu they were connected the knights had put a chain across so they could hide their galleys in there and stop the Turks sort of getting in between the two peninsulas and taking fort saint angelo's so but what they had done what the knights built a jetty a pontoon if you like between the two of small boats so the knights could run across quickly and along with the knights, you had 2,000 Spanish infantry, you had, some people say, up to 2,000 Maltese civilians, probably fewer than that, actually, probably in the hundreds. But they were all running around. Plugging the gaps. Yeah, yeah, sort of a firefighting force in reserve. But the reserves were running out. I mean, Fort St. Elmo not only bled the Turks, but also bled the knights as well. But the knights and soldiers were, to some extent, armed, but the janissaries didn't have armour. Some of of them did. Some of the Turkish troops did. It really depended on what the job was at the time. So they did have basic... You know, way back, I mean, if you go back to the Crusades, you got the Muslim armies tended to wear things like lamella or lamella armour, which was plated armour. And some of it was very, very sophisticated. So they had a very strong tradition of, of steelwork and armouries. So they were up there. So it's essentially um, a trade-off between protection and being able to actually move around in that heat at speed. Yeah, you had to, you know, you're talking summertime, you're talking midsummer, and you had to move quickly. And the Turks were the ones who were running out of water big time. In terms of horses, yes, there were horses. The horses of the knights, the cavalry of the knights had gone up to Medina, the, the walled city, the walled citadel, higher up the island, a few miles away north. And they used to come out to raid the, the baggage trains. And in fact, it was those raids that eventually convinced the, the demoralized Turks that a relief force had landed when the cavalry did a particularly heroic raid on a baggage train and butchered everyone they found. And so it was that constant sort of 
Again, it was constantly undermining the Turks, picking them off, taking centuries out, which is the oldest trick in the book. You know, and it's no different to say the raids that someone like Anders Lassen was doing for the SAS and SBS in the Second World War along around the islands, the Aegean. So you, know, you are basically doing hit and run raids. Yes, um, or the sniper, the Russian snipers in in Stalingrad. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you're trying to deflect, you know, undermine the morale. It is a psychological thing, not just a physical thing. You are basically trying to terrorize and unnerve and keep the enemy off balance. But the terror tactics and intelligence used to defend the fort and also to win the battle well i mean psyops as we now call it was always has always been a key feature of any sort of warfare what psyops psychological warfare has always been you know trying to undermine the morale of the enemy has always been key in a battle and so for example when the Turks decided to march towards Medina, the, the governor of Medina ordered his sort of couple of cannon to fire their shots way before the Turks came within range. Even they didn't have very much artillery on the, on the ramparts, and they certainly didn't have very much shot or powder. But he did it to show we're strong. And then he got all the women and children to wear Morian helmets and carry pikes and march along the ramparts. This convinced the Turks that Medina, it would be a waste of time attacking because if they had lost as many men as they had done against St. Elmo, they were certainly going to lose more against Medina. So that's a classic example of bluff. And if you want an example of terror tactics, you know, when St. Elmo finally fought, fell in late June 1565, the first thing the Turks did was obviously murder the knights who were still alive. I mean, there was no quarter on either no, side. No, quarter, no, no. Quarter, no quarter at all, because there was no reason to want to ransom anyone. And also the Turks had lost so many men attacking the fort. I mean, their blood was up. So what they did is they beheaded the knights, whether they were alive or dead, but they certainly beheaded them. They stuck their heads on pikes so that a thousand yards away from his roof terrace on Fort St. Angelo, the, the Grand Master of the Knights would have seen it. All the Knights in Fort St. Angelo would have seen what was happening. Then, to cap it off, the Turks crucified the bodies on makeshift crucifixes and floated them across Grand Harbour to Fort St. Angelo. These any prisoners they had, or these were already these, yeah, everyone, and, yeah, everyone they found. I mean, you know, but they certainly floated crosses across. And it's always been said that at that point, the Grand Master Vallette decided, ordered his prisoners, the Turkish captives, he had to be beheaded, and he fired their heads from the cannons on the ramparts of Burgu and Senglia and, and fired them back into the Turkish line. Quite technically difficult to do, I would have thought, without kind of blowing up the heads in your cannon. <laughs> well, actually, if you wrap them up, it's amazing what you can propel out of the end of a cannon. <laughs> so We'll have to make a YouTube uh, <laughs> test. We'll do a taste test, <laughs> a tastelessness test. But it was a sign from the Grand Master and from the Knights that they weren't going to be terrorised. They weren't going to capitulate. And they had their backs to the wall. They knew that what they were in for. Um, were they? And in a way, that Death tactic, or victory. Uh, yeah, and in a way, that tactic backfired because you know, had Mustafa Pasha, the, the general in command of Turkish forces, done what Sunan the Magnificent had done in Rhodes, 
and said, okay, if you will, we'll negotiate a surrender and you can leave with your dignity intact after this heroic stand, maybe there would have been some sort of compromise, there would have been a deal. But this time, they were going nowhere. And actually, I don't think that the, the, the Knights of John wouldn't have, wouldn't have surrendered anyway, because they knew that had they retreated from Malta, that would be the end of their order. They, 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 they weren't be, going to be given anywhere else. They to, weren't going to be given anywhere else. Their time had passed, basically. Yeah. History was against them. But, of course, having won the siege of Malta, when the Turks finally gave up, of course, money poured in. And when did they... I mean, did after the fort fell, was that basically the end of the show? Or? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, you're talking about a siege that went on for over 100 days. They went on battling on the walls of Burgu and Senglia, and they just got nowhere. I mean, it was, you know, but the, everyone was at last gasp. I think the Turks certainly were, and of course they were hit by dysentery, which killed tens of thousands of their men. But they were also, you're getting into autumn by that stage, and the Turks thought, what are we going to do during the winter? You know, you can't use galleys in winter weather. They would have been trapped on Malta. There was nowhere for them to go. So they either had to get out or they would have had to winter there with their supplies running out, with their men diseased and dying from dysentery or from their wounds. What could they possibly do? And once they discovered or once they believed they couldn't take Medina, the walled city in the north, they had no shelter at all. They would have been living out in the open. And so their morale absolutely plummeted. Then they thought a relief army had arrived, so that was the last straw. And so they started fleeing, and the knights were attacking them all the way. And it was a rout by the end. I mean, the Turks were dying in the water. As they left? As they left. And relief forces were arriving, and so they had nowhere to go. They were in a very, very bad state indeed. Once Valette had won, once he had seen them off the island, that's when the knights became enriched body that they then became. I mean, Valletta, the modern city of Valletta in Malta, capital of Malta, is built on Mount Sybaris, which is where the Turks, overlooking Fort Sedelmo, which is still there, and those were the heights on which the Turks had their cannons, had their trenches and their gun emplacements. Now, the money poured in slightly after the fact, or did they feel this was the place to defend Christendom and then from there on? Oh, it was after the fact. It was really as in praise of the triumph and really in, in total sort of respect of Jean Parasso de la Vallette. I mean, he had won the day. And of course, everyone sort of has this image of this sort of heroic grammar. He was 70 at the time. But when you see paintings of, he's a short fighting man. You know, he's a very tough, you just know he's a Terrier. very tough you know, pirate. But there was, behind it all, a core of faith. I mean, if you, again, if you walk on the roof of Fort St. Angelo, which I was very lucky to do when I was researching Blood Rock, my thriller about Great Siege of Malta, in the private chapel, there's a column of pink granite. And it's always been said that the only place that that is found is really in the Holy Land. And that was brought from the Holy Land when the hospitalers fled in 1291. So, you know, a sort of a token reminder. A token reminder. It had obviously gone to Rhodes and then been carried from Rhodes and the ballast to the, the galleys to ended up in Malta and been put in the chapel. So, so was it honour and valour or was it money or was it both that sort of gave these people, these knights, their purpose and their... Oh, I think at the time of the siege, it was knowing that there was nowhere to go, uh, that this was it. A life of, of happy raiding along the North African coast was over, and 
they had, in a sense, brought this upon themselves. No one was really going to come to their aid. They didn't, they, you know, they knew they were on an outpost and they knew that they were probably going to be sacrificial lambs. Uh, were the Corsairs, uh, they were also raiders. So what were they, they were well, raiding they were, well, they, in the other direction? Well, Dragut had turned up, the famous leader of the Corsairs, a famous, famous pirate captain. But he had basically joined this jihad. I mean, he had joined this, this what he considered a holy war to wipe out. And, and I suspect he didn't like the knights because they were on his territory. They yep. were on his turf and raiding ships that he thought he could probably get hold of. Yes, so, so he, he could have he, had the whole of the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. so he didn't like it at all. So he turned up. But he was a tough fighter. He was a very old and a tough fighter too. But it was the last great stand, really, against the Ottomans. And, and the, after that, the Ottoman Empire waned. If you wind on to the Armada in 1588... Medina Sidonia, the commander of the Spanish fleet, really had knowledge of Mediterranean fighting, of galley fighting. And so you, you can see in the tactics of the Armada this close defensive formation in a crescent shape. Those are classic galley tactics. Right. Um, and, and not, not, and so uh, did Drake know that that would. Oh, absolutely. And Drake and Howard and the others attacking the Armada formation were basically using British tactics of broadsides. Um, they weren't particularly effective, but they drove the Armada on. That's really what the British were trying to do. And so they were harrying this large formation that was in a very defensive sort of formation. And in the same way, that's exactly, you know, they were mirroring, the Spanish were mirroring the, the tactics they were using in the Mediterranean. So at Lepanto, again, you get classic, classic sort of galley tactics. I see. The European side won. Was that because they had more galleys? They were pretty equally matched, I believe. But uh, you know, we just put up a better fight. And they were on the up? Well, the morale was on the up after the siege of Malta. And of course, who should be involved in the Battle of Lepanto but the Knights of St. John themselves? Yeah. They had quite a few galleys in the battle. And again, their pirate tactics came to the fore. And so, this is at the time of the sort of beginnings of the Renaissance, is it? So the whole sort of the power is moving from the Middle East, today's Middle East, into sort of the cities, Western Europe. Into the city-states of Italy and elsewhere. And, and, and again, by this stage, the Knights of John were absolutely the talk of the town throughout Europe, the talk of every court in Europe. Even Elizabeth I sent her congratulations and her praise because everyone knew what they had achieved. And it was a pretty dramatic and spectacular victory, a very bloody one, but huge costs to the Turks. And I think the, the Turks never recovered from that defeat. It was a really bad one for the Ottoman psyche. Brilliant. Well, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Hopefully, people feel a little bit more informed about what it was like to fight and be skewered by these various weapons and the effect they had on both sides, the winning and the losing side. Jamie, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. <laughs>